Pew, 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 pew. Clearing, out, clearing out my talking tube a little bit. Yeah, cool. What they call your throat? <laughs> no? What do you call it? Uh, just like my throat, I guess. Basic ass pros. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I can read, you can read, we can read. We're reading together. I married you, you married me, we got married, yeah, we married each other. Now we're reading books, talking in mics, discussing stuff with one another. We're a, a couple's book club. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Couple's <laughs> Book Club. This yeah. Is the, this is the podcast where... Um, uh, Isaac says ridiculous things, and um, I laugh real loud. And then we also talk about a book that we both read. Yep. For this episode, we read "I Am Not a Serial Killer" by Dan Wells. This is some like hardcore young adult fiction. It didn't. It didn't feel fantastically young adult though. I mean, I could definitely see it being sort of like classed as that, but yeah, it, it, it was pretty breezy reading. Easy breezy, beautiful cover girl, cover girl, yep. kind of, yep. But like for your eyes, oh, I guess there's cover girl stuff like not not like for your eyeballs, but like. In well, the, no, that's the new thing. You got to put glitter on your eyeballs. Glitter balls. Uh, uh, your retinas are not shiny enough. Yeah, I'm, seriously? I'm sorry. So that's a problem for me? Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't say young adult anywhere on it, but it's about a teenager, and it's like 270 pages. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it sort of felt like like kind of like, uh, like Hungry Games level writing, where it's like certainly, you know, adults could read it. But it's not like they could read it if they're big creeps. I read all the Hunger Games books. Taught the Hunger Games book. Well, the first oh, one. Oh, oh! I, I told you that story about that. that there was like a kid in one one of the semesters I taught that who was like vehemently opposed to it. What did he say? It wasn't real literature. He thought shit? it wasn't like appropriate for a literature class. Um, why don't you go fuck yourself? And teach your own class. Yeah. While fucking yourself. I guess would be an impressive feat if you could both teach and fuck yourself at the mm-hmm. same time. I've not tried it. I'm sure some have. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, but that was, uh, that was you know, there aren't wrong opinions, but... That's false. Yeah. There are wrong opinions. Yeah, that was also, that was a wrong opinion. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, like, sort of, sort of, sort of young adulty, but not, like, overwhelmingly so. We're just like, I feel like this is beneath me. No, it's just a real, like, it was... Like, I read it in, like, like three big chunks, basically. Well, yeah, I think when I was I was reading it, uh, I read most of it as I was, like, proctoring finals. Yeah. And if I can read it at, like, a, you know, 60-page-per-hour pace, mm-hmm. that's probably sort of, like, young adultish territory. Yeah. I bought this book after, because they made a Netflix movie out of it, which was pretty good. And yeah, I, like, I, I like the movie. I want to read that book. So if you haven't seen that movie and you don't want it spoiled, you should probably stop listening to this podcast and yeah, go watch it. Yeah, it's going to be so full of spoilers. So spoily. 
It's like, uh, I don't know. It's like, like old meat. Like fucking Tokyo Drift. What? Oh, it's, it's a Fast and Furious movie because okay. there are cars with spoilers on them. Maybe made with hockey sticks. All the best ones are. <laughs> One can only hope. <laughs> Not the good chicken fingers. Mm, fuck community college. Exactly. So, I guess we could just talk about the basic plot. Uh, there's this kid named John Wayne Cleaver, which is a little on the nose, but okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who, uh, he's basically he's a psychopath. Um, was he like 15 or something? Something like that, yeah. And, uh, he's obsessed with serial killers and, um, he has, he can't emotionally connect with other people and he's actually seeing a therapist about it. And he like has all these rules for himself so they, he won't like get too interested in other people and want to hurt them well, yeah, to try to keep himself away from, like, behaviors that he sees as being, like, leading him down a bad path. Yeah. But then, um, well, and he lives with his mom um, above uh, the, like, funeral home where she and her her twin sister run it. It's his aunt. Um, and he doesn't get along with his mom and she's like mad at him for being a psychopath and thinks that she can yell him out of it which is like not what how that works just makes him feel bad I mean she's, it's it's an unorthodox method <laughs> that she's she's trying yeah kind of, kind of a bless her heart sort of situation but yeah she kind of sucks though um, I mean true mom that's how they are uh, yeah it's true oh and he's got like a disaffected older sister who's around kind of and then, like, a terrible dad who abandoned the family. When suddenly, in their small town, a uh, a killer strikes. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. And it's not John, but... Uh, well, I feel like that's... Maybe this is something we'll get to. <laughs> but I feel like that's something that the movie did more of uh, in the way of, like casting suspicion on him yeah as i did. recall because the book i didn't get that vibe at all really no but yeah in the movie it was like people sort of were looking at him a little bit weird because he you know just sort of had those tendencies or kid, kids at least at school like knew of his sort of fascination because he wrote papers and stuff about it sometimes right yeah yeah no people are like that serial killer creep like yeah the viewer knows it's not him but um yeah, people in the town do. But that, yeah, that doesn't really happen in the book. I kept waiting for that, for people to suspect him. Yeah, which is a little bit disappointing. But Yeah, it's definitely, well, I guess I guess the movie takes, it, it moves some things around. Yeah. And because the book is so, like, it's first person, and it's about his, like, inner thoughts and his inner struggles with what he calls the monster, which is, like, his psychopathic violent tendencies... Is there voiceover in the movie? There's got to be something like yeah, that. Yeah, I feel like there's got to be some narration. It's, it's, it's so, been a bit. But. so much of the story is internal to John. Yeah. Um, and, of course, he's fascinated by the murders as they start to happen. They're particularly gruesome, like people being cut open and parts, like, organs being missing and shit. Well, because there's a question of, like, it, are they animal attacks Yeah. at first? And then there's that weird, like, black sludge mm-hmm. at the crime scene that they can't really explain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh, is, like, helping it uh, with the uh, 
like the embalming process or whatever and like that's his favorite thing and he's like a little too interested in the bodies so then his mom gets freaked out and uh like won't let him help anymore until the therapist says that uh, he thinks it would be a good idea for him to be able to yeah uh, and then she lets him back in. Yeah. And then uh, ultimately sort of out of necessity too, I think, just because yeah. it's like a manpower thing as the bodies start piling up. Yeah. Well, because for him, it's like a controlled, safe way for him to like be fascinated by bodies, dead bodies and like how bodies work and like. Well, without having to create them himself. Right. Without so. nobody has to get hurt. They're already dead. The police are baffled, but he starts to figure out like he because he's like obsessed with serial killers and shit like he's trying to profile this killer and figure out like what they're what they're doing and what they want um and i'm not sure how he figures out who who's doing it oh i guess he saw he followed him well yeah because i think ultimately he sort of because this was after was it just after the first victim or was it after the second killing because there's, this is one of the things I had sort of marked down. I think this is when he is talking about it with the one kid who's sort of his friend, but then eventually oh, he sort of... yeah, his one friend, Max, who's yeah. also an outcast. Yeah. Um, he said, they're, when they're sort of discussing it with each other, he says, uh, what's he doing that he doesn't have to do? And that's as they're trying to sort of get into the killer's head. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's partly from that process. Oh, um, but then he... Because he, well, because he, I think he's. Because I read of, the first like 70 pages. Well, because he's. If and I'm, then I didn't read it for like a month. So. If I'm remembering correctly, he's sort of like surveilling just downtown just to sort of see what's going on uh, and notices this drifter guy. Yes. And sees uh, Mr. Crowley, his sort of like old man his neighbor. Old man neighbor played by Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. So Christopher Lloyd is, is the old man across the street, Mr. Crowley. Uh. And so he sees this drifter guy that he's got his eye on and is sort of worried about and thinking, like, who's this guy, you know, new person in town, suspicion, etc. And sees his old man neighbor uh, sort of pick him up uh, because they have a little bit of discussion about, like, ice fishing. Yeah, the dude approaches Mr. Crowley. Yeah. And Mr. Crowley's like, I'm going ice fishing. Do you want to come with me? Well, like, he takes him out for lunch first, too. So they have lunch and then they go to go ice fishing. Yeah. And so uh, John is, like, suspicious of this, thinking, okay, the drifter, you know, I need to watch this guy. And, and he's follows like, oh, He goes on these, like, middle of the night. Well, this is daytime. but This oh, is daytime, yeah. He does do, like, middle of the night winter bike adventures. Yeah. He can't drive. He has a bike. But so follows him out to the lake, thinking it's going to be the drifter guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the drifter guy does pull a knife on Mr. Crowley. Yeah. Uh, but that's when we see... Crowley reveal himself or whatever is inside of him reveal himself as this weird like supernatural monster kind of thing yeah that's uh, in the movie like that is like what the fuck yeah you can <laughs> see it coming a little bit more in the book slash you know having already seen the movie well, you kind of knew but at, in the book he calls it a demon and yeah. he says at the beginning there's a demon which could be metaphorical but yeah yeah, in the movie, they don't... I kind of thought of it as, like, a weird alien thing. But they don't really say. Yeah. 
and nobody knows and there's never an explanation of what it is or where it came well, from. Well, I don't remember the demon phrasing in the movie, so possibly that's one of the things they changed or sort of dropped yeah. to make it a little bit more ambiguous, but they may have just called it like a monster or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, basically he's this uh monster alien demon thing that it is like has like terrifying claws but has been for who knows how long what he does is he steals people's bodies and lives as those people until those bodies wear out and then he gets a new one although in this case he has this body and seems to be keeping this particular one right uh, it's, it's an old man body that's breaking down initially we don't know why but because he's keeping the same body he has to update it all the time with fresh parts as things break down right so with the various uh murders there's always like something missing like an organ or like an organ a body or, part yeah or like his legs bothering him and he gets a new leg from one of the bodies um because his magic alien body can like heal itself back together and it's scary and terrifying and uh yeah so uh, John sees Mr. Crowley kill this dude and then like hide his body. He's gonna like put it under the ice or something. Um, and so he starts like watching Mr. Crowley because he doesn't fucking know what to do and he can't tell anyone. Like the police aren't gonna believe him. Well, because he tries once. Yeah, there's one point where he's he's watching Mr. Crowley and he sees him leave his house late at night. So he follows him and he sees him pick a dude up and he calls the police and the police and are like hey the serial killers got what do they call they just call him the Clayton killer is that what the I think so yeah the Clayton's the town this is like the Clayton killer has um, his latest victim he's gonna kill him it's, he's in this kind of car and the police are like yeah sure whatever but they check it out anyway and they come upon Crowley as he's attacking this dude and Crowley ends up we find we see that bullets have no effect yeah on the monster and he kills the cops too and John's like that backfired maybe going to the police isn't the best right right because he doesn't want like other people to get hurt because he feels like that's his fault and so he's just yeah so he starts and then eventually he kind of starts playing this kind of cat and mouse game with him like leaving him notes and being like I know what you are and stuff and he's like totally stalking them but in the meantime he's ingratiating himself with Crowley and his wife as John the nice neighbor boy who's kind of quiet and weird but who shovels their walks and like helps them with household chores and stuff well he starts playing the head game too as part of uh uh, like war of attrition kind of thing because he knows like because he, he comes to sort of understand okay he's replacing these body parts that are failing mm -hmm. and so he thinks like he can just to a certain degree maybe kind of wait him out that if he can slow him down yeah long enough he won't be able to replace stuff and he'll just die off and it'll take care of itself essentially right because he's seen he doesn't think he could kill him like with physical violence yeah but yeah he's hoping yeah, he's hoping that his body will break down by scaring him enough that he will wait too long. Well, because it seems like the, the sort of pace of the murders is quickening. 
Yeah. And so there's this idea that his body is breaking down faster and faster. And so that it's, you know, if he can stave this off for just a little while, it might be enough. Mm -hmm. So everything kind of escalates. And in the end, he comes up with this kind of fucked up plan. Uh, Because he figures out that Crowley is doing this. Like he, he, he figures out he's not just sloughing off this body because... Um, he's in love with his wife like he took this dude's body and went and started a new life met this woman that he married and has been married to for like 50 years or whatever and um, yeah is like actually in love with her and doesn't want to leave her Um, but and so he can't just like switch wholesale to a new host yeah but because this also, is the form that his wife like, knows killing dudes <laughs> And stealing their body parts. Just, like, not cool. So, John's plan, I guess, is... um, He tries to get Crowley to wait as long as possible. um, So that he's near death, basically. And then he finds a way to get him to not... Like, get him close enough where he's, like, trying to find a victim. And getting really close to it. But then he'll distract him. Because he goes into the Crowley's house and basically, like, stages, but doesn't really stage, like, uh, an attack on the wife. Yeah, because he hits her pretty hard in the head a few times, and it's like the sort of monster thing kind of coming out of him a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it seems like it's everything he can do to sort of stop himself from finishing her off. Yeah. And fully embracing that side of himself. Well, because he wants to get all these pictures of her, like, tied up and shit to send to Crowley like on his phone so he will turn around and come home because he knows that he will if he thinks his wife is in danger yeah but like honestly i don't think he needed to do that but that's okay i I feel like he could have more easily staged it without hurting her but probably probably but he calls his therapist who talks him down well and then crowley kills his therapist and then crowley kills his therapist because the therapist is like where are you i'm gonna come find you and is leaving his house in the middle of the night and is like the only person out and so that's who Crowley finds but he hasn't had time to take anything from him so he just has him in the car and so John um, is able to hide the therapist's body while Crowley's in the house checking on his wife and so now he has nobody to take stuff from but then John's mom realizes some shit's going on across the street and comes out and they basically like bait him into what's the room where they yeah where they're doing the like prepping the bodies Uh, yeah and he like is like kind of disintegrating before their eyes and then he like well he uses the tool that like sucks all the uh the like fluid out of him yeah yes yeah he yeah he like vacuums him up basically but in the end crowley's like like don't tell anyone because he he doesn't want people to know that it was him and so his mom has seen the monster and she knows everything um but they have to tell the police that they just saw their neighbors being attacked and they went to help and they don't know what happened to the killer and the killer's just mysteriously gone now and that's basically the end yeah i mean there there are more in the series i think there are more books yeah yeah so presumably it sort of picks up from there. We find out some more of that stuff, but that's where this one ends. That's where the movie ends. I don't know if there are no more monsters or what. I don't know. 
Because I just thought this was going to be a nice little book about uh, a psychopath kid who helps solve murders, but then it turned into this whole kind of like sci-fi direction that was really interesting. Yeah. That's what happens. Yep. That's good. It's a good, <laughs> good plot summary. Watch you through basics of this mm. book. So, mm. um, It is kind of unsettling, though, because it's like he d- he's he's a psychopath and he knows he is and he tries to control it but like like he's like a kind of obsessed with this girl and he tries not to let himself get too fixated on her but then he's basically stalking her oh no yeah no he's definitely stalking her um and he knows he shouldn't but like he likes her and in the movie they kind of have those two become like friends and she is the one who helps him defeat the monster not yeah. the mom yeah so it's it it's different um yeah they make it into more of a love story kind of thing but it, i mean it's not really romantic like nothing really happens but like you can see that maybe it will head in that direction eventually like it's a little bit more of a happy seeming ending well i'm sort of wondering if uh i don't know if that's something that happens in one of the other books and they just ended up sort of like condensing some stuff. Oh, like they start hanging out or whatever. Into the movie, yeah. Because yeah. like clearly she kind of likes him or is at least intrigued by him. Like she's always like smiling at him and shit in a way that seems like she's giving him special attention. Yeah. Maybe she's just teasing him though. Maybe she's a bitch like that. Just be, man. That's but yeah, also he's like, yeah, no, I think about uh, violence all the time. It's for fucked up. And also, like, if you did have a kid who was a psychopath, like, I think you could handle it better than his mom does. Um, yeah, she doesn't really... Well, yeah, like you were saying before, she seems to think it's something that he can kind of control or that it's a Wait, choice like, in like some ways. She's, like, mad at him. Yeah, it's like, no, this is just how he's wired. He can't really do anything about it beyond what he's doing right, right he now. Right, he can't start empathizing just because it makes you sad that he can't. Well, I feel like in some ways it's almost better because it's like he could be, I don't know, a more competent or sort of like fluent psychopath and be able to mimic those behaviors. Right. Which is way more troubling than what it seems like he's doing where it's like it's it's sort of transparent that he can't. Yeah. So it's more legible what he is versus if he was just, I don't know, better at being a psychopath right he was like ted bundy you wouldn't even know and that's worse i think right like he can fool you at least at least you know he has no empathy right rather than him seeming to have empathy and then just like playing with you essentially well and part of his like set of rules is that he just doesn't get close to anyone because he doesn't want to hurt people and he just thinks that if he cuts himself off he can't ever do anything bad to them or whatever yeah yeah um, which is sad, but also kind of like, at least at this point, necessary, it seems like. Yeah. But he's also kind of like trying at the end to like give his mom the benefit of the doubt a little bit. Yeah. Um, and she's trying to like understand his shit a little bit better, which, you know, it's good. It's good. They're trying. Meeting each other halfway a little bit, sort of. But it does of. remind me a little bit of... um. When we read uh, what's The Psychopath Inside. Yeah. And that dude talking. I mean, he's clearly a charming psychopath. Yeah. Um, and doesn't have these violent urges. Like, his case is different. But 
also with like treating people well and shit he just like has to like intellectually know what the correct behaviors are because that's not normally he'd just do you know whatever the fuck he wanted right but now that he knows he's a psychopath he's like oh i should act like a nice person to the people that i you know care about or whatever right which is just so weird to think about what that would feel like. Oh, to, like, have to sort of simulate that. Yeah. Well, because in John's case, like, part of him being so isolated is not only because he can't mimic it and he's afraid of hurting people, but, like, he's just, he's mad that he doesn't feel things like other people and he doesn't have human connection or whatever. Yeah. Which, especially when you're, like, a fucking 15-year-old. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I feel like it's especially pronounced when you're a teenager, which is already just, like, a sort of fucked up and difficult age anyway. Mm-hmm. And feel like no one understands me. But, like, literally, no one understands him except for his therapist. Yeah. Although he never tells his therapist he's, like, stalking Crowley or any of the monster stuff. Because, I don't know, he just doesn't think it'll get him anywhere. I mean, I guess towards the end, he, he sort of, like, hypothetically... Like, he frames it as a hypothetical, sort of, like, what would I do or what should I do in this situation sort of thing. Right. But it's set up in a way where it's almost, it sounds like he's talking about himself. Yeah. And this side of himself that he's sort of trying to control or struggling to control sort of thing. Yeah. And so I don't think the therapist, like, really reads it as anything. Sure. Well, other there's than no reason why you would Him just framing that. it differently than he has to this point, but. Yeah, you got any important points you needed to, to bring up? I mean, I, we've. Well, I sort of touched on this before when we were kind of casually talking about stuff, but to me, the the most interesting parts of this, and maybe it's, I don't know, I noticed it more because I was familiar with the basic sort of plot skeleton from having watched the movie already, mm-hmm. but is the, like, John character development sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. The, like, his first-person perspective sort of talking about his kind of interest in or how he just sort of experiences being kind of an unwilling psychopath Mm -hmm. which i think is really sort of interesting there are lots of parts in there because most of my notes are sort of from the first or at least the stuff i wrote down even when i did it on the index card uh most of the notes are like the first 100 pages yeah i think when it's all background stuff but i thought that was really sort of interesting uh I i don't i don't think i'm a psychopath you're not a psychopath. But there were a lot of parts of this where it was like, okay, that, that feels sort of familiar. <laughs> or that sort of resonates with me Which a little part, bit. The part where you like fire? Uh, not so much the fire thing, although I thought the descriptions of fire were kind of cool. I wrote those down in a couple spots. So there's one spot on uh, 56 where he's talking about fire as being this sort of disinterested entity. And it's this idea that, like, fire doesn't really care if it destroys stuff. Like, that's perfectly fine. Fire has no issue with that. Uh, And then later on, he talks about it as being this, like, living thing. Mm -hmm. Like, in the sense of, like, how we describe life, that it, like, needs to consume things and do this stuff. Um, That was sort of interesting. But... uh, Well, they do mention he has... I forget what the name... It's like the McDonald triad or something like that. Not sure if that's the right name, but it's... Uh, yeah, McDonald Triad. It's like uh, bedwetting. 34 is where I have it written down. Bedwetting, yeah. fire setting, and cruelty to animals. Yeah. And he mentions, and they, they kind of play it up, I think, more in the movie, that he used to, like, play with animals in, like, a fucked up 
like basically torture sort of way. Yeah. But he didn't even know that it was wrong until somebody said something. Yeah. About it. Because he didn't think of them as things that feel. Yeah. And that's when he started to realize that he doesn't process stuff like other people. Yeah. No, there were a bunch of... I just feel like the the his describing that sort of stuff. So um, I'll just go through a few of these points that I thought were sort of interesting. Mm -hmm. So there's one spot where I think this is fairly early on where he's talking about um, why he's... I think this is maybe even he's sort of discussing it with his mom after he's turned in one of his uh, like serial killer assignments at school. That's not uh, what the assignment was, but that's the topic he chose. Yeah, well, it was like an important person in history or a noteworthy person in mm -hmm. history or something like that, and he did a serial killer for it. Um, and he says, uh, wrong is interesting, and mm -hmm. that's why he's sort of fascinated by this, that it's like these people who are just like sort of fucked up and do very fucked up things, but that there's something sort of intriguing or kind of fascinating about that. Mm -hmm. That explains his interest, but I think it explains the interest in serial killers sort of more generally or stuff like that. that there's just something like, okay, this is so like fundamentally out of bounds that people want to sort of understand it and are kind of fascinated by it. Well, I think it's... it's... This is 27, the wrongest interesting point. Oh, no. Um, oh, it's just in the acknowledgments. Uh, uh, Dan Wells says... He's got a men he mentions his friend who he's thanking who shut me up in the car one day and told me to stop talking about serial killers and just write a book about them. Yeah. So like clearly this dude is into that shit too. Yeah. Yeah. Um presumably he's not a psychopath. Um but it's an interesting exploration and clearly he's done a lot of research about what that might feel like. Right. Right. Well, I just thought there were uh there were two spots that I uh Mark that I thought were good descriptions of that, which also felt like things that sort of resonated with me. Uh, so there's one spot where he's sort of describing what it feels like to be a psychopath in the way that he is, and he talks about it as being like you're like you're emotionally deaf or mute or both. Uh, that like you just don't have the capacity to do those things like even if you sort of wanted to which it seems like he kind of wants to mm -hmm. and then there was another spot a little bit later on where it's like he is experiencing emotions uh, and he has this sort of question like what do you what do you do with this like he just doesn't have the apparatus to know how to sort of process these things yeah so when there are things that he does experience on occasion like he just doesn't know sort of how to handle them like that people, I don't know, either sort of initially or through kind of upbringing have this kind of apparatus around it where you un you understand what this is and what you do with it. And he doesn't have that either as a consequence of being a psychopath or because of the sort of conditions of his upbringing or whatever. Probably a little of each. Which I thought was sort of interesting just as a, like either not being able to do it or just not sort of knowing what to do with it if and when emotions sort of arise. It's yeah. just like there's this thing there, you know you know you're doing it wrong, but you don't know how to do it right <laughs> and you can't even if you kind of wanted to. And so it's your just sort of like best approximation of things or like your 
you're self-aware enough to know that this isn't how it should work, but you don't know how it should work or you don't know how to make it work, kind of. Which I thought, because I don't know, I mean, he's... It's difficult to be 100% sort of sympathetic with him mm-hmm. because you see these sort of darker urges that he has that he's sort of generally harnessing successfully but not necessarily always mm-hmm. or it feels sort of uncertain in a lot of spots. But I think you do end up feeling sort of bad for him just because he's clearly sort of like suffering well, in various really forms. struggling. Yeah, and like you can't help but kind of root for him or feel bad for him a little bit and want want him to sort of figure it out right and so it's it's not quite a, a straight up like anti-hero kind of thing no well because the thing with him and i think that the therapist points it out when he tells him like you have strong psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies but you have a very strong moral code yeah so even if he can't quite he can't feel empathy for other people and he does have these urges he for himself knows that that's wrong to hurt people and doesn't want to do that even if it's not based on empathy it's just like his like he well it's abstract principle versus human feeling and he doesn't want to do that yeah um and so it's just really interesting to think about like having that be the guiding principle not like i don't want to make other people suffer because i know what that feels like it's more like I don't want to make other people suffer because uh, it's abstractly wrong. Yeah. Which, I mean, the, yeah. Whatever, whatever is your check, I suppose. Right. But, yeah, just not how you would normally think about it, I suppose. But it is kind of a little bit the way that, like, it's interesting. It kind of makes me think about the idea of how some people think that you can't be um, moral or ethical without, like, a religious... Yeah, which is absolutely not true. Or some kind of, like, outside entity telling you, like, this is wrong and bad and you will be punished for it. No, you can absolutely base your uh, sort of morality around, like, an abstract ethical basis, I think. Yeah. And, and you know, for most people it is probably largely based on empathy. Like, I shouldn't hurt other people because hurting hurts. (laughs) I know what that feels like and I don't... I don't want to make other people feel like that. Also, you can just be like, yeah, I think that that's a wrong thing to do is to uh, make people suffer on purpose. And it's not because it's against the law or because Jesus is going to be mad at me and not let me go to heaven. Yeah. Um, It's just like a starker kind of sadder version of that. Well, I think that's really fascinating, though. And it's I don't know. You get into like burn bro like purity off kind of bullshit off the basis of that but I the, to me there's something I don't know if I want to call it better but kind of better about doing the right thing without there being some sort of enforcement behind yeah. it so it's not yeah you know you're going to get arrested or uh, you'll face you know eternal damnation but just that you think this is fundamentally wrong so you don't do it for that reason and you don't mm-hmm. need someone you know, coming after you about it, that you can just do it for that alone and not have it have to be something else. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think society needs to have rules because there are people who don't give a shit if stuff is wrong. Sure. Who may be deterred by 
you know, legal ramifications. Sure. Um, and also should not be out and about doing horrible shit if they are just going to do that. Right. But at the same time, any person can convince themselves that what they're doing is okay in their case. So, like, you might abstractly know, like, oh, stealing money from uh, my grandma is wrong and a dick thing to do, especially to a family member. Also, it happens to be against the law. But if you personally have this reason why you desperately need the money and you can't ask for it or whatever, you can, like, justify it to yourself. Like, it's okay if I do it this. I'm not a bad person. I'm just doing what I need to do. I yeah. Think, I think people are really good at doing those kinds of, like, moral con- contortionism um, in order to, to continue to believe that they're good people. Yeah. But it, w- it would be interesting to be in John's position where you don't think you're a good person, but you're still trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Just kind of the opposite, maybe. Yeah. Oh, and there's that one time when he, he catches himself referring to that girl as it, and he is really mad at himself. Yeah. Um, which is fucked up. <laughs> yeah. So even though there's... He stops the monster so no one else is going to be murdered. He now feels like he's kind of, since he started breaking a lot of his rules by, like, letting himself stalk Crawley and also Brooke, um, and uh, allowing himself to hurt people for, like, this greater cause of stopping the monster. Yeah, it's just kind of unsatisfactory because he feels like the monster's kind of out. There's not a happy ending. Some things are better, but other things are, like, scarier because he's in less less in control now. Well, and it seems like, at least in the in the case of Crowley, it's, like, lo- lo- loosening the reins on the monster is beneficial in that case, at least in sort of a limited sense. And so it's this weird kind of, like, positive-slash-negative reinforcement sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, okay, well, maybe it's, you know, good if I lighten up a little bit, but we also know sort of what direction that leads. Yeah. If he sort of gives into those impulses a little bit. And so it's a very, it's very tenuous, uh, which, I mean, I'm sure the, the, you know, other books are dealing with him sort of battling back and forth with himself about that or times when the monster is beneficial or learning when to sort of let it out and keep it in kind of thing. Yeah, and I just wonder if it's going to be more cases. Are there going to be more of these demons or are they going to come upon some other thing that he's allowed to use his psychopathy to, um, like, solve the case or whatever? Yeah. No, I don't know. Presumably that's kind of what happens, but I should look into that. No, I'd be curious to read other ones. After after I read this one, especially as I was reading the first part where the character development stuff, it's like, I want to see more of this character because I oh, think I guess he's interesting. It's a, tr- it's a trilogy. Yeah, so yeah. Probably be worth looking into others. In some ways it reminds me a little bit of um, I know you haven't read them, but you've watched a little bit of that Wire in the Blood, the British TV series with me. Yeah. Um, they're based on these books by um, Val McDermott, uh, the Tony Hill, Carol Jordan books, and about super fucked up British murders, and she's a cop, and he's... Um, 
he's a psychologist. He's basically a forensic psychologist um, and who, who works with, like, super fucked up murderers and stuff. And, like, as you get read through the books, there's, like, a ton of them. Um, you find out that he comes from this really super fucked up family background. Like, his mom is definitely... She's a narcissist, if not a psychopath. And, like, he was abused and neglected as a child and all this shit but basically somebody intervened when he was young who like kind of helped him like not become like horrible and violent but he has enough of the same like kind of at least proto-psychopathic traits and like isolation from other people that he that's why he's so good at profiling serial killers because he comes from a similar background that a lot of them do and like feels the same way that a lot of them do like he isn't there but yeah um that's what makes him good at it and that so i think that's kind of interesting and what um john's doing here is maybe like a little junior version of that yeah um maybe that's what maybe that's what he can do maybe he can become a profiler i mean he does sort of like I mean, they do kind of... He does, like, some armchair profiling, at least initially. Right. Well, and it helps him figure out how to, you know, stop the monster. Yeah, well, and how to, how to sort of bait Crowley or mess with him. He does have to consult his therapist to find out that the motivation, um, you know, might be emotional. Yeah. <laughs> oh, love. That's why he doesn't want to get rid of this life and this body. Yeah. I will say the very first chapter, it's like them it, like doing, like draining a body and embalming it and shit. And it's like, it's gross. I really don't like things like needles and veins and shit up in there. So I was like, well, I don't, ooh. But it was only that first chapter, but it was like right away. Yeah. Well, it sets the tone for what's to follow, I suppose. Yeah. No, it's a dark book. It's very dark. And, like, you want John to succeed, but he, it also really... And I think, in part, being able to picture Christopher Lloyd in the in the role, you really kind of feel for Crowley, too. Yeah. Like, he doesn't want to be doing what he's doing, but also what he's doing is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it's just an interesting, especially for a young adult book, to like um, the whole thing's a moral gray area, and that's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, good job, Dan Wells. Dan Wells of Orem, Utah, and with four young children. Oh, you're so Mormon, Dan Wells, or at least used to be. Oh man, I can only imagine what a what an outcast he is. I was never into serial. I, I wrote stories about murderers when I was a young Mormon teen, but no one was ever concerned about me. I mostly didn't turn them in at school. They were mostly for me and my friends. Yeah, I was definitely into serial killer stuff. I didn't really get into true crime stuff until much later, and then I was like, oh yeah, I have always kind of liked this shit. But I always like the X Files was my favorite show when I was like eleven years old. So like, I definitely liked like dark, creepy stuff. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to? Yeah. I, think we, I think we hit what I needed to hit on that one. Okay. It's a it's a pretty short, breezy book for how relatively heavy it is. Yeah. Um, it's a really fast read. One well, especially good. especially once you get out of that sort of character development part, it's pretty like actiony. Right. I had like I don't know fifty pages left the other night, and I was like, well, because I had stopped in the middle of a chapter, I was like, I'll finish this chapter, maybe read one more before I go to bed. 
but then it gets to like the accelerating action at the climax of the the story and i've just read the rest of it i mean it was like a saturday night didn't matter also i'm not drinking right now so you know a lot of time on my hands so much time so much time that was i am not a serial killer by dan wells yeah yeah exactly we have chosen a book. <laughs> do you want to tell us about it, Isaac? Well, I don't chosen our next you, you book. You do intros, man. Oh, I do everything. <coughs> I was offering you the opportunity. <clears throat> so for next time, Isaac pulled this one off the shelf where we have um, a variety of shit-looking books that we have picked out for possible uh, podcast reads. Um, this one I found mm-hmm. at some thrift store i don't remember which one now but it's called the cinderella complex women's hidden fear of independence by colette dowling copyright it's from 71 1981 81 oh it's later than i thought yeah mm-hmm. that's already a bad sign mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh one of the blurbs on the back definite uh positions her as the next Betty Free Dan, so... Mm-hmm. It's a pretty big shoes to fill. Talking about uh, new feminism. Mm. This blurb says... The con- she's talking about Free Dan. Um, but the conclusions drawn in the Cinderella complex are radically different. Dowling returns responsibility to the individual, which sounds like the 80s. Yeah. Uh. It's it's been a while since I read Feminine Mystique, but uh, oh wow, okay, yeah. Like if this is if this is the opposite of that, I'm gonna have a lot to say about it. Oh, Cinderella Complex is a system of repressed desires, memories, and distorted attitudes that has its beginnings in childhood. I can't wait. Yeah, this should be should be. I a can't gem. wait to be angry. I can't wait to be horrified. I can't wait to. Um, deface this book pens yeah it should be a good one Pumped. should be good Colette Dowling this author picture is not, yeah, I'm not quite sure what she's going for there she's got her mouth is kind of open and the lighting from the top makes it look like Halo-esque but like in a bad way 1981 called once it's author photo back hello oh snap I tried to give myself a, like a little low five yeah it's not down. it's not working that well Guys, um, see if your li- local library or um, box of donated books has uh, the Cinderella complex and read along. I've, you could probably find some copies on like. I'm sure there's some floating around on eBay or eBay somewhere. Or like Amazon used or some shit. Yeah. This uh, looks to be awful. Now, uh, you know, our, our, our 20 listeners are going to generate a, uh, a run on Dude, vintage copies of Cinderella so complex. We have. 65 listeners <laughs> and we appreciate you all <laughs> I think that means we gotta start making merch now oh man I would love to make some merch if I thought we could sell it what's what's the the least number of a thing you can make one you can't you can make like one t-shirt yeah you can't I mean online you can mm-hmm. you can make one t-shirt that says I've done it before like one single t-shirt that says a thing yeah, we should uh, should look at some merch. 
Um, so to my sister, Kelsey, um, if you'd like to pre-order some merch, um, anyone else, let me know. Yeah, if there are any suggestions. One of my favorite things that I wrote down from a very early episode that I want to be on merch is, I think it's from, it might have been from when we read The Secret. Uh, we were talking about how uh, she would just tell hemophiliacs to, to cure themselves, but that they should think coagulative thoughts. <laughs> and I want a shirt that says, think coagulative thoughts. There you go. <sighs> If you, you would buy a, a shirt or something that says Think Coagulative Thoughts, hit us up. Um, you can get in touch with us, actually. You can email us at uh, couplesbookclubcast at gmail.com, where all I get is just special offers from WordPress. Speaking of WordPress, we do have that website, couplesbookclub.blog. Um, and you can find us as at Couples Book Club on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. You might notice I uh, put up new header photos of us with our uh, stuffed animals, uh, which are many and uh, growing our collection. It's out of control. A uh, photo taken by the inimitable uh, Adam Iverson, you may recall from episode 10, uh, Eat, Pray, Love. Yes, those are the main ways you can get in touch with us. You can also find me on social media. Um, on Twitter and Instagram at DinoLoreRexNut. Got any plugs? Got any shows coming up, Isaac? Got so many shows, dude. <laughs> Constantly starts, out there on stage. back to school next week. Doing stuff. I don't have anything going on right now. Teaching is kind of like a show. I feel like I should have more to say, but I don't. We do. We always have more to say when we read a shit book. Yeah, I think th- things that we like are always a little bit, <laughs> a little bit thinner. So it's like, yeah, this was, this was good. I so enjoyed it's, it. it's hard to read a lot of shitty things because it feels like homework, but that we don't have as much things to say about them because we're like, yeah, I liked that thing. Well, I mean, there's there's that sweet spot with the hate read where it's like, if it's like an engaged hate read. Yeah. Uh, I think when you get into bad spots, it's like that fucking Nicholas Sparks book where it's just like boringly bad. Yeah. So I th- I, I feel like... Cinderella complex is going to have a lot of meat to it. I mean, I'm sure it will. Um, looking forward into looking forward to ripping into that thing. I can't wait to have um, blaming people's own unhappiness, um, not on the a patriarchal system, but um, individual responsibility. Individual responsibility, because that's that's almost always an argument that uh, infuriates me. Yeah. So, get ready. Okay, gang, um, thanks for joining us, uh, Couples Book Club. So, happy 2019. Get your reading boots on. Is that what you wear when you read? Reading boots. <laughs> your reading glasses, your reading yes. hat. And, um, yeah, join us for the ride. We're getting new podcast gear, so hopefully we'll start sounding a little bit better next episode. Uh, audio-wise, the content's still going to be shit, but... No, I'm stepping my game up. Oh, okay. Well, Isaac's so going to be better. Are, I'm going to drink an entire energy drink before instead oh, nice. of just part of one, so I'm going to be hyped. Maybe maybe by next time it'll be February and I can uh, hop back on the booze train and um, at least feel like I'm funnier, even if I'm not. Well, we're recording this next week, this next one. Oh, wow. Better get on Cinderella Yeah, you got to crank it out. <laughs>
I was gonna try and record it tomorrow. So okay, well I have to go to my skip job, work. Skip so. it. No priorities. I only work five hours a day. So you have nineteen other hours to read. Okay, I have to read. For, I have to sleep for twelve of those. All right, friends. Um, we'll continue this uh, heated argument off air. We'll see you next time. And by see you, I mean you'll listen to us next time, probably. We hope. Thank you. Please do. Okay, bye.